Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are continuing our conversation of Albert Camus' The Rebel. This is part two in our series. Last episode, we covered kind of the introduction and part one, which was titled The Rebel. Um, and this is a follow-up. We did The Myth of Sisyphus also before starting this work. Today, we're talking about part two, which is metaphysical rebellion. And this is a much, this is, I don't say it's the meat of the book because there's still much more left, but this is a much more in-depth section than just part one. Part one, he's laying the groundwork. Part two, he gets into like basically examples. And so there's much, much more detail here. I think the first section was like 20 something pages and this one's like over a hundred. So quite a change of gears, I think, in part two. Um, we're not going to go over a summary or anything. If you don't know where we're at, then go back to episode one, and it would probably help to actually start with the myth of Sisyphus. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Do you have anything to say before we just dive right in? Uh, let's get this show on the road. We're going to do our best to try and condense it, as Nick said. Um, yeah. It is a long section. Um, if we are to critique Camus as we've critiqued others, he is a little bit redundant and repetitive in this section. So we're going to try and sift through some of that. Um, he's basically here then, providing examples to support his idea of what a metaphysical right. rebel is. We're not going to go through every single example. So we're not going to do like yeah. the dandyism and the poets and it's just not even worth it's not worth our time to brush up and become experts on dandyism or even like French poetry or something. That's not going to happen. Though I did do some research on the poets he was talking about that I had never heard of. It's actually kind of awesome, but yeah. it wasn't worth us talking about here. So we're going to focus mainly on the three sections, which is when he writes about the Marquis de Sade, mm -hmm. Max Stirner, and Nietzsche. So we're going to talk about those three and then his closing section, which is, uh, I think, metaphysical... No, it's nihilism and history, I think, is his close out here in this section. Which brings um, us back to our, our second time, I think, apologizing for this. We're probably going out of order here. We probably should have done Nietzsche um, mm -hmm. and Sterner before we did Camus, but uh, we'll go back and do those as well later on. Yeah, you're right. We would have benefited from much more depth on those two. But these, yeah. I think this will actually serve as a kind of a good intro to both of those yeah. men uh, but we could have gone deeper here on those. But I mean, this episode would be four hours long if we actually went into depth in every single one of the things he talks about. Yeah, they'll section, get their so. own. They'll get their own. Their yeah, own episodes for sure. Yeah. Okay, metaphysical rebellion. So the first question is, what does Camus mean when he's talking about metaphysical rebellion? So this quote kind of starts off this section. He says, "Metaphysical rebellion is the movement by which man protests against his condition and against the whole of creation. It is metaphysical because it contests the ends of man and of creation." The slave protests against the condition in which he finds himself within his state of slavery. The metaphysical rebel protests against the condition in which he finds himself as man. So if you remember back to part one, he uses this example of a slave rebelling against his servitude and against his master as sort of like the first example of a rebel who then discovers something of value in himself and solidarity with humanity through this act of rebelling. He says the metaphysical rebel is protesting not against like his slave master or his servitude, but against his condition as a human being. Um, yeah. Anything else there? No. So before we dig into it further, like, again, if this is just kind of surface level and you're introducing it to individuals like myself, the, the first thing I thought of is that this rebellion can kind of go one of two ways, this, this metaphysical. You're going to clear this up later, but I do want to kind of get it out now. Mm -hmm. 
that this rebellion, rebelling against the idea of humanity, uh, again, can lead one to, of course, question all of you know, like human nature and, 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 and where we, we exist um, within this plane. But one question I had, and again, it gets answered, it was actually answered in the first section, and it's going to get answered again later. One could argue that this rebellion leads to the manifestation of like creative narratives, and thus, of course, like spirituality, and then religion. Now, that's not Mm -hmm. necessarily what Camus means. But as a just a lay reader of this, that's one of the things I thought is the advent, for lack of a better term of religion, rebellious against this very nihilistic feeling um of questioning why am i here cool okay we'll talk about that later because i already know saw your comment Um, so we'll save that stay tuned um it's important too in this section he's talking mostly about philosophers so for camus the metaphysical rebels are the ones who think about right he's talking about you know, when you're faced with an absurd human existence, how do you respond? Here he's talking about basically thinkers. In the next section, section three, which we'll do in the next episode, historical rebellion, he'll talk about the actors, people that, you know, have acted upon these ways of thinking. Um, So this brings us, you know, what is Camus setting out to accomplish in this section? He says, metaphysical insurrection in its first stages offers us the same positive content as the slaves' rebellion. Our task will be to examine what becomes of this positive content of rebellion in the actions that claim to originate from it and to explain where the fidelity or infidelity of the rebel to the origins of his revolt finally leads him. So he's basically saying the slave that revolts against his slave master is sort of, quote unquote, pure rebellion. He didn't use that term, but I will. Um, Basically, he's exploring from here on out what happens next, right? Where does this lead to? does rebellion and revolt maintain true to its roots sort of this initial rebellion and discovery of what is valuable? Um, Then the first sort of subheading in this section is um, the sons of Cain. And in short, his argument here is that, you know, people use this term all the time, even today, this we're living in this like Promethean era, or this like this Promethean revolution or Promethean like social movement, right? But Camus argues that modern rebellion is not a descendant of Prometheus and the Greeks, but is instead a descendant of Cain, and, yeah, Cain uh, from the Bible. So quote here, he says, rebellion's origins must belong to the remote past in that we like to believe that we live in Promethean times, but is this really a Promethean age? And he continues, the history of rebellion as we are experiencing it today has far more to do with the children of Cain than with the disciples of Prometheus. In this sense, it is the God of the Old Testament who is primarily responsible for mobilizing the forces of rebellion. So let's talk about very shortly who Prometheus and Cain were and their stories, just to give this little context. Um, And obviously we're going to be overly simplistic here because this isn't the main goal of this episode. But just so you know, if you didn't, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to the humans. And he was punished by Zeus uh, to be chained up and have an eagle eat his liver and for infinity. Basically, every day his his liver would regenerate and then the eagle would return and eat it again. So that's Prometheus. Cain was the first son of Adam and Eve. He was literally the first child, uh, according to the Christian mythology. And he had a younger brother, so the second born male in the universe, 
um, was Abel. And I'm just going to read directly from Genesis where the story is because it's not very long. Um, here we go. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought uh, the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So that's as short as we could possibly make it, right? The story of Cain and Abel, which is incredibly popular. I'm assuming the vast majority of people have at least some general idea about Cain and Abel. So Prometheus is a god who rebels against Zeus, who is also a god, and gives fire to man, i.e. mortal beings. Cain is a man who rebels against God with a capital G. So not like the gods of Greek mythology, but G-O-D, God, right? Through his murder of his brother Cain, he commits literally the first human murder in the universe, according to Christian mythology, right? He is the first uh, murderer. Now, if you're curious, uh, this begs a sort of theological question. Why would God motivate him or inspire him or allow him to kill his own brother? Um, you can Google the theological rabbit holes that uh, the mental gymnastics that have been done by different belief systems to answer that question. But that's not the point um, that we want to do here. Camus continues. Metaphysical rebellion presupposes a simplified view of creation, which was inconceivable to the Greeks. In their minds, there were not gods on one side and men on the other, but a series of stages leading from one to the other, right? So this, I think, is Camus' main point. The, the whole dynamic is different between the Greeks who were rebelling against the gods and Cain, who in this case, in theory, is rebelling against the rule of, of God, right? The singular, abstract, sort of anthropomorphized God. Go ahead. So the key distinction here um, for our listeners is that like the Greek gods themselves, first and foremost, one of the, the key things that we can talk about, I, I don't know that we have time in this episode to talk about it, was like the very human qualities of the Greek deities. They had folly, they had faults, they're not like infallible, um, they're vengeful, they're hateful, etc. right? Those are the Greek gods. They had more human qualities than this um, almost all-knowing, uh, benevolent um, creative essence that we see in the Abrahamic one. So that's the first thing, the first thing we have to distinct distinguish. If we then think about it, the way Camus is framing rebellion, you can't necessarily rebel against what the Greek version of, of, of deities were, but you can rebel in this specific metaphysical rebellion against this one all-encompassing God, or if we want to exchange like nature, just this is the dominant hegemonic way things are, and that's what's going to lead to this rebellion that he's talking about, this metaphysical rebellion of thinking uh, of just of the human condition. You can't do that with the Greek gods. That's that's not a possibility when you're dealing with a Zeus and a Poseidon and a Hades and so on and so forth, or whatever, a Dionysus. The, this is only a rebellion that can take place. Again, this is a thinking rebellion, not, not an actual material rebellion against this all encompassing, um, God. 
Uh, and mm. specifically, it has to be the Abrahamic one, which we talked about in the prior episode. He leans so heavily into Western Civ on this, but but in this case, based on monotheism, I think it's it's the correct choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you know anything about Greek mythology, right, the, the whole thing is stories of gods like making mistakes and screwing up and doing stupid things, right? This is uh, definitely different than the Abrahamic one. So if the Abrahamic God is invented um, through narrative for whatever reasons, at one point I would personally argue for not a thinking rebellion, but a material rebellion against, of course, corrupt rabbinical culture or or what have you, or maybe um, occupations by Babylonians or Assyrians, all all of the great Old Testament stories we all know and love at this point in time. That's fine. That's why it was invented for those as a narrative to start those types of rebellious ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. But that's not that's not Camus. What, what he's focusing on. He's mm-hmm. focusing on the idea, the advent thereafter, right? How yeah. we here in Western Civ have kind of framed it in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, to a lesser extent, we have an episode on Zoroastrianism as well, but we don't need to go on that tangent. This idea that does, it seeks to answer all questions, right? It is the dominant way of framing um, our existence. Um, even for those non-believers, like it has that dominant effect. And for the thinker, what does that mean and how does one or why would one rebel in that regard mm-hmm. against this all-encompassing? I mean, we um, and and I'll, I'll save some of this for, for when he gets to Sterner because that's when, when, when yeah. we're going to – yeah. We even have an episode that's – I think the title is literally Jesus was a revolutionary or something like that. Yeah. Talking about that in within the framework of rebellion and revolution but completely different direction than Camus yes. would take that, right? Right. He says, quote, the ancients, even though they believed in destiny, believed primarily in nature, in which they participated wholeheartedly. To rebel against nature amounted to rebelling against oneself. It was butting one's head against a wall. So this is another main difference is that the Greeks viewed themselves as part of nature. So they would never think to like rebel against human nature or nature itself. That'll be important later on because you'll talk about examples of uh, how people have framed this differently. So he basically argues that metaphysical rebellion is the rebellion of man to either negate God or to become God himself, to take that place. This wasn't possible for the Greeks because they could only become one God among many. Uh, And Camus says the Greek heroes could aspire to become gods, but simultaneously with the gods who already existed. At that time, it was simply a matter of promotion. So it was never any of their goals I mean, just to put it frankly, they didn't have this idea of a singular, you know, a singular deity that ruled the universe that literally wasn't a thing. Right. So they in this case, they couldn't have rebelled against that because it wasn't a thing. And Camus, I think, explains that well here. He says, quote, metaphysical rebellion in the real sense of the term does not appear in coherent form in the history of ideas until the end of the 18th century, when modern times begin to the accompaniment of the crash of falling ramparts. Yeah, so basically, so, go, ahead. go ahead. He says this starts at the end of the 18th century when uh, certain philosophers come on the scene and basically just the social milieu is such that it gives birth to this type of thinking. Go ahead. I think it's past at this point. Yeah, I was just okay. going to re- rehash like the Greek notion, but I, I think it's past. Yeah. The next section is absolute negation, and he gives us many examples Um, And the first one is a man of letters. This is the Marquis de Sade. He is referring to uh, who himself, he referred to himself as a 
man of letters. Camus suggests that he was the first to philosophize about uh, challenging God in the spirit of nature, which will break down. Um, if you've never heard of the Marquis de Sade, he, he's, I don't even know how to explain it, but uh, a controversial figure, I guess, in history. Most people are appalled by his behavior. Some people find inspiration for his, I mean, rebellion in this case against certain ways of thinking. Um, basically, he was a French nobleman who came from an incredibly wealthy family. Different members of his family were like in the church and in the French uh, estates, etc. Um, once he grew up, he got in trouble with the authorities many times. I mean, he's like the example of history of like the sexual libertine. It's like the classic example. In fact, the term sadism is named after the Marquis de Sade, just to give you uh, an example. Um, these are some of the accusations that he was convicted of, whipping, whipping a prostitute, drugging a prostitute, later forcing them to have group sex and also engage in sodomy. He was literally convicted for that. Um, all kinds of different charges against him. He was sentenced to death, though he wasn't present. And later, the death penalty against him was changed to just uh, imprisonment. And then, for lack of a better term, he went mad. Uh, and he spent the rest of his life in and out of insane asylums, where he finally uh, died uh, at the age of 74 in 1814. I guess I didn't say when he was born. Um, he was born in 1740, died in 1814. So the end of the 18th century, like Camus says. Yeah, um, he's not just a run-of-the-mill philanderer, like going no. against like the social morals of, you know, adultery or, or whatever have against sodomy and things along those lines that, that would have been common in 1700s and 1800s in Europe. <laughs> he's using specifically like violent, like he's yeah. violent, like this is violent. And that's what makes it. That's why he's a better example for Camus. He's just not just like he's not just like a cheater or frequenting um, uh, brothels and things along those lines. He's taking it to a very violent level, and I think that's why Camus uses him in the example. Well, the other thing that's really unique about him is once yeah. he spent a lot of time in prison, he was well educated enough to write his ideas. So he has his own philosophy that he writes that's coherent and makes sense. Um, that like you know anyone else like you know it's not like what he was doing was that uncommon. But there was no one that then tried to write it into a philosophical system like Saad did. And his ideas still to this day are, you know, widely studied uh, as a result. So what is this? Well, um, not celebrated. I mean, we go so far as like yeah. rationalizing things like rape. Yeah. Like, no, you, you oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Camus says, quote, the idea of God, which Saad conceives for himself, is therefore a, of a criminal div divinity who oppresses and denies mankind. That murder is an attribute of the divinity is quite evident, according to Saad, from the history of religions. Why then should man be virtuous? Saad's first step as a prisoner is to jump to the most extreme conclusions. If God kills and repudiates mankind, there is nothing to stop one from killing and repudiating one's fellow men. So this is Saad's jump in his philosophy that if God himself, who, you know, this religion is the foundation of morals and so forth, and God is the great judger of the universe, if he himself is murdering, then there's absolutely, you know, no philosophical argument to be made that men can't also murder each other, right? And if you remember, the whole goal of the rebel for Camus is to investigate this concept of murder. So this is, you know, where we are heading. Um, the interesting here, and this is the really the turn that Saad takes that's unique from the rest, and according to Camus, unique from anyone else in history, 
is that he really, really doubles down on this concept of nature that he has, where most people had at the time and still to this day, I would argue, like a romanticized view of nature as sort of creator and giver. And like you all, you all know, Mother Earth and like so forth. Saad really, really believed that nature was chaos and destruction and war and murder. And then he creates a moral imperative, like a system based on his belief of the natural world. And so he basically, you know, says it's only natural to adopt the laws of nature as one's moral compass. One should murder, one should destroy, and so on, because nature does that very thing. And we're only essentially being, quote unquote, true to ourselves, right, by doing these things. I have a quote from another source. This isn't Camus, but this quote, uh, this outside source explains it really well. This is from an article called, uh, by Jay Larson called Albert Camus' Caligula and the Philosophy of the Marquis de Sade. He says, Sade was one of the first to fully articulate in one very specific direction the moral and political consequences of a transcendentalized, purely materialist vision of nature, which considered it in a non-sentimental fashion, focusing on nature's power of destruction rather than on romanticizing its creativity. Without the idea of God, nature has lost all teleological purpose and moral underpinning, and instead becomes simply the manifestation of chaos and destruction. And he continues, this view of nature is not particularly original. Like we all know, you know, people like Hobbes, as an example, are making arguments like this already. But he says, he continues, Saad's originality stems from the fact that he translates and appropriates the factual destructive dimensions of natural cycles directly into a fully fledged moral theory. Natural destruction as a simple fact becomes moral imperative. Do you have anything on that? I mean, uh, no. I mean, staunch disagreement, but that's not our point today. I could argue <laughs> these. I could argue with the Marquis de Sade this POS right. uh, till I'm blue in the face, but that's not the point of what we're doing here. My question, my inquiry here, and you're going to get to it again. Mm-hmm. Only framing this because I, it, 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 this guy, he really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But um, is this is him engaging in this act this manifestation of chaos and destruction as a moral imperative would that not be for terminology for terminology purposes more of a coup than an act of rebellion so who or what would it be a coup against god in this case yes It depends, right? If he is, so Camus might argue that he's rebelling against the human condition by, through his rebellion against God, right? Because in this case, God represents the the negatives of the human condition that I think Saad is arguing against, right? I mean, he really is arguing the argument of the times, which is, you know, murder is wrong because of, you know, the values of Christianity and God, etc. And Saad is saying, no, it's not that we don't need to consider those things at all. And he then confronts the absurd, which is Camus' argument, right? How are these men confronting the absurd? Saad confronts it by the turn that he takes, you know what I mean? Where basically everything is permitted Everything is permitted. I mean, that's it, you know. Right. I'm reading too far between the lines probably, but but what I'm seeing here, and this even goes back to make me think of the myth of Sisyphus, mm-hmm. like the constantly, like the absurd idea of rolling this 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 ball up the hill over and over again for eternity. What I'm seeing here is maybe Saad 
calling God out as a hypocrite, more or less, because mm-hmm. he's, he's willing to admit this much, that chaos, destruction, whatever within nature, or if we want to, of course, attribute it to God, is just, that's the moral imperative. So actually, we would argue that, that in this case, God is acting morally or uh, under this imperative, but then saying to, of course, um, subscribers that that's not the way, that that's not, of course, the moral imperative, though God gets to do it. So it's do as I say, not as I do. But then re-engaging with this, if you are rebelling, means that um, essentially, yes, you're calling, in this case, like people's belief system within God, that's hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I guess I'm struggling to make the connection to full-blown rebellion against God. Rather, this is rebellion against the hypocrisy of God's followers. Does that make sense? No, not really. I mean, it's not as if God, God, in their opinion, right, teaches that murder is okay, and then they twist those words to make it say murder is wrong, right? The teachings directly say that murder is wrong. So it's God that's the hypocrite, not his followers in this case, right? Yes. So, but, but, but then by doing what God originally intended, because he's willing to admit, of course, if we, if we read into whatever the old Testament, or if we even use the example of Cain, Mm -hmm. that, that, that murder is more or less acceptable in God's mind, if God is the one doing it, or if he ordains it, or if he allows to, allows it to happen. And yet he's still saying X, Y, and Z don't do this, but I'll do it. And then Mm -hmm. if you engage in that, is that really a a rebellion against God? I suppose it could be. I I mean, I I suppose it could be. Well, keep in mind, though, this is I struggled with this, too, because I kept thinking about Saad's behavior. But that's not what Camus is focused on here. Right. He's focused on his philosophy. So I don't take it as like when Saad commits these atrocious acts, in our opinion, um, that is his rebellion. Camus doesn't actually care about that at all. He's only focused on Sa's logic, right? His philosophical logic to justify his behavior. But the behavior itself is sort of irrelevant in this case for Camus. It's the turn that Saad takes where he essentially establishes nature and its destructive characteristics, etc., cetera, uh, as above and beyond the authority of God. That's the turn that Saad is taking and how he attempts to negate the rule of God himself by doing so, but not through his own behavior. Camus doesn't touch on that, even though, like you said, I think there's a lot of narrative to be had there clearly. And there has been so many philosophers have talked about Saad and his behavior and his philosophical positions. Right. Um, this is Jay Larson. Again, he says by substituting nature and its laws for those of God and divine will, the concepts of good and evil and vice and virtue are exactly inverted in Saad's world. This is what the transmutation of values can mean. Crime and vice become manifestations of the perpetual motion of matter and thus moral imperatives, while virtues relate to stasis or the refraining from action. As a result, vice becomes a virtue. I like that because he talks about, he calls it the transmutation, right? Transvaluation. Saad essentially just flips the entire thing where vice and virtue are exactly inverted, as Larson says, where vice crime and vice become manifestations of the perpetual motion right sod argues that it is my vice that is my natural instinctual right motivation so then camus calls him out and which he does with every single one of these examples says basically this is a big contradiction on behalf of sod because once man kills and the object of his murder that's like say you're killing another person 
ceases to exist, right? They are dead. You then, according to Saad, must continue this process endlessly, right? You must fulfill this endless desire, which means that you must kill and kill and kill again, you know, for infinity. And so Camus says, quote, when the accounts are closed, when all the victims are massacred, the executioners are left face to face in the deserted castle. Since murder must be repeated, in their turn, the masters will tear one another to pieces. So Saad's logic run to its conclusions must result in complete annihilation, except for the one person who remains. Camus uh, mentions this person as the unique, which uh, we're going to get to Stirner in just a second. This is clearly a reference to Max Stirner because he uses this term extensively. In the moment when there's only one person left, they've remember, this is all theoretical. When there's one person left and they have murdered every other person, then they lack desire. Camus says, quote, at the moment of his greatest victory, the dream vanishes, end quote. So the one, the unique, finds himself imprisoned again by the very nature that set him free because he now has this desire to commit this act and is unable to do so because he literally just can't. There's no one else to kill, really, right, in this theoretical example. And so the only thing left to murder is himself. Camus says, um, you know, his entire act began as, quote, an illusory advance from the total no to the absolute yes and culminates in an acquiescence in death at last, which transfigures the assassination of everything and everyone into a collective suicide. So Camus' main arguments in this section is one, Saad is the first to think in this way, to make this jump and conceptualize this type of metaphysical rebellion. And this type of rebellion is forced to abandon its rebellious origins and results in totalitarianism. Remember, Camus is focused in this section on what happens to the original spirit of revolt. He argues that Saad's logic run to its conclusion results in totalitarianism. Um, and I really, really like this because remember he's talking about thinking rebels. And so he says, quote, he has only triumphed in a dream and those 10 volumes crammed with philosophy and atrocities recapitulate an unhappy form of asceticism which I just like the 10 volumes uh, crammed with philosophy. He hasn't actually done anything. He's basically gone full circle in his mind and is just imprisoned yet again. Um, anything to add on that before I read the final quote that he has in this section? I think it's interesting that we can make the association, again, even though this is the thinking rebel, to actual rebels. And that's mm -hmm. the immediate association I made that ha after a certain point when, quote unquote, these political revolutions we've all learned about and we have used in this podcast over and over mm -hmm. again, when they're all said and done, why does the rebellion slowly take on more of that, like, and to use Camus terms, that totalitarian um, uh, purview? Why does it begin to act like that? I think this is a good metaphor for that. Anyway, yeah. that's it. Have you read the next section yet? The historical re rebellion? I have not. Oh, okay. You'll see. So he, then he goes over, he answers that question. That's his whole, the next section. He talks about the French revolution and Marxism and et cetera and why and how those have all resulted in totalitarianism. That's his whole goal in the next one. So we'll get to that in the next episode. Um, Camus says, Saad's legacy is, um, he says his merit, which is incontestable, lies in having immediately demonstrated with the unhappy perspicacity of accumulated rage, the extreme consequences of rebellious logic, at least when it forgets the truth to be found in its origins. These consequences are complete totalitarianism, universal crime, an aristocracy of cynicism, and the desire for an apocalypse. Two centuries ahead of time and on a reduced scale, 
Saad extolled totalitarian societies in the name of unbridled freedom, which in reality, rebellion does not demand. So Saad for Camus represents, you know, absolute negation because he negates God and morality in the name of nature, the rule of instinct and force. But this, as Camus just laid out, results in totalitarianism, uh, as he explains, I think, pretty well. Next section here is the Dandies Rebellion, talking about dandyism, which is kind of interesting, but we're not going to talk about that here. It'd just be too long. Then he talks about the rejection of salvation. Not going to talk about that uh, either. So in the section, Absolute Negation, we're only really talking about Saad. I think it's enough to get kind of an idea. The next section is Absolute Affirmation. And this is, you know, basically the rebels that say an absolute yes, yes to everything. Because even though Saad says yes to all behavior, theoretically, he's saying no, an absolute negation of God and his power, right? So the first section here is the unique. And this is where we get to Max Stirner, um, because his main work is best translated. Camus actually translates it as the unique and its characteristics. The best translation going now, the latest is the unique and its property, but the most famous by far is the ego and its own. But I can't stress enough, and we'll cover this in more detail when we do an actual episode on it, that the term ego is like such a misnomer in the title. It's just nonsensical, but we'll get to that when we get there. So this whole section is basically about Stirner's philosophy and uh, the unique and its property. So who was Stirner? If you don't know, I'm going to give a super brief one here because like we said, we're going to do a whole episode on this, but... Uh, Max Stirner is the pen name of Johann Kaspar Schmidt, who lived in Germany from 1804 to 1846. He studied at the University of Berlin. He actually attended lectures by Hegel and was a uh, member of a group called the Free Ones, who now are referred to usually in philosophy and scholarship as the Young Hegelians, which included Marx, Engels, Bruno Bauer, and others. Um, Obviously, these are names that you would be familiar with if you know anything about German philosophy. Um, He published his most well-known book. Like I said, it's most well-known as The Ego and Its Own, even though that translation is stupid, in 1884, which influenced Marx and Nietzsche and every individual anarchist after that, and Bakunin and so on. Um, Really is, I think, probably the most influential but least known philosopher and book probably maybe ever, definitely in German philosophy. Um, Okay. Camus says here, quote, God is the enemy. Cerner goes as far as he can in blasphemy. Digest the host and you are rid of it. But God is only one of the aberrations of the I, or more precisely of what I am. Socrates, Jesus, Descartes, Hegel, all the prophets and philosophers have done nothing but invent new methods of deranging what I am, the I, that Cerner is so intent on distinguishing from the absolute I of Fichte by reducing it to its most specific and transitory aspect. It has no name. It is the unique. We have a whole episode actually on the eye of Fichte that we sort of sloppily navigated through. But if you're interested (laughs) on that, uh, check that one out. Um, In short, as much as we can make this a simplistic uh, Cerner's idea, he basically argues against any abstractions whatsoever, anything at all that is made, quote unquote, sacred beyond the individual, the unique, the one person. And not the like proverbial abstract individual that's commonly used in discourse, but like literally a person, a concrete physical manifestation of one singular person. A Um, snowflake. (laughs) Cerner's term for this singular like individual is the unique. Uh, Just so you know where that term comes. 
Um, Camus explains, uh, explaining Stirner continues, the history of the universe is nothing but a continual offense to the unique principle that I am, a living concrete principle, a triumphant principle that the world has always wanted to subject to the yoke of successive abstractions, God, the state, society, humanity, etc. Camus continues, continuing to explain Stirner, a dawn will break, which is not the dawn of revolution, but of insurrection. Insurrection is in itself an asceticism, which rejects all forms of consolation. The insurgent will not be in agreement with the other men, except insofar as, and as long as, their egotism coincides with his. In this respect, individualism reaches its climax. It is the negation of everything that denies the individual and the glorification of everything that exalts and ministers to the individual. Okay. So Sterner basically, like you, if you know anything about Sterner, is an individualist, um, but more specifically an egoist that says essentially, I can do anything in my power to do that benefits myself and everyone else can do everything that is within their power to do that benefits themselves. And so the reason that this is an absolute affirmation for Camus is because for Sterner, everything is on the table, mm-hmm. um, but for different reasons than it was for Saad, right? Uh, it's not because, according to Saad, right, it was because it was in line with our nature. For Cam- or for Sterner, it's because it benefits me, right? And in fact, Sterner has staunch arguments against this abstract idea of human nature and humanity. And he says, actually, any concept of human nature is nonsensical. And it's just another sacred spook is like the meme term that he uses. It's a spook that we, again, are subjugating ourselves to this idea of human nature. Camus continues, uh, I mean, how does this relate, right? Bringing it back to Camus' investigation of murder. Um, according to Sterner, everything is acceptable, including murder, Camus says, um, of which I can make use and everything of which I am capable. Basically, anything which serves my interests, one's interests, and which I have power to do is acceptable. And very clearly, that includes um, murder. Camus continues, quote, once again, rebellion leads to the justification of crime, but to decree that murder is legitimate is to decree mobilization and war for all of the unique. So very clearly, as soon as one person says murder is acceptable, I have it within my power to do it and it suits me, then very clearly this is all at war and all individuals can then, you know, are free to make that uh, decision. So this is a similarity in Saad's conclusion and Stirner's conclusion, but for they arrive kind of at the same place, but for very different reasons, right? They get there, they take different paths of which to get there. Okay. Anything yet before I read this long quote? Uh, just, again, we'll get to Sterner on his own, yeah. but in this part, obviously it's completely asinine conclusions he's drawing, but that's, that's for a not that we're, we're talking about Camus and I think Camus is going to critique this anyway. So he'll yeah, do it better than I can. So this is a long quote, a block quote that I'm going to read because I think he, it, this is a really good one. He says, quote, thus murder will con- coincide with a kind of collective suicide. Sterner, who either does not admit or does not see this, nevertheless does not recoil at the idea of any form of destruction. The spirit of rebellion finally discovers one of its bitterest satisfactions in chaos. And this is him quoting Stirner. You, the German nation, will be struck down. Soon your sister nations will follow you. When all of them have gone your way, humanity will be buried and on its tomb, I, sole master of myself at last, I, heir to all the human race, will shout out with laughter. And so among the ruins of the world, the desolate laughter of the individual king illustrates the last victory of the spirit of rebellion. But at this extremely nothing else, 
at this extremity, sorry, nothing else is possible but death or resurrection. Sterner and with him all the nihilist rebels rush to the utmost limits, drunk with destruction, after which, when the desert has been disclosed, the next step is to learn how to live there. Nietzsche's exhaustive search then begins. So essentially, Sterner's logic run to its conclusion. We basically end up in the same place as we did with Saad. And so, you know, I love the way that uh, Camus closes this section out, basically saying, um, drunk with destruction, after which, when the desert has been disclosed, the next step is to learn how to live there. Nietzsche's exhaustive search then begins, which leads us right into Nietzsche. So it's basically saying, Saad and Sterner lead us down this path of what Camus argues is nihilism. We'll have the conversation of whether egoism is nihilism when we get to that episode. Um, it's, con it's controversial. But whatever, Camus does. He makes that conclusion. He says that egoism is nihilism, that Saad's philosophy is a version of nihilism. And he says, you know, they both lead us there to absolute destruction. Nietzsche is a very different philosopher who tries to solve the problem of nihilism and figure out how we live, you know, in the quote unquote desert, as Camus um, calls it. Again, we're just going to do an overview here because we're going to do a Nietzsche in a whole episode. In fact, I'm not even going to do a bio of Nietzsche. He was a philosopher. That, that last image reminds me of uh, the Steve Cutts cartoon, Man, where at the end yeah. he's on top of those piles of like trash. Um, mm -hmm. And that's it. Like he, what, what else is there for them? And then, of course, in, in and of itself, that, that renders this whole philosophy moot. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, we're just talking about the thinkers here, right? It's not right. as if Camus lived his life, or I mean, uh, Stirner lived his life like that, right. right? He didn't, right? And you could even argue, is it even possible to live your life like that, right? No. Many people would say, no, it's not, right? No. Um, but we'll get to that when we break that down. Um, I'm not going to do a bio of Nietzsche. If you don't know who Nietzsche is, just Wikipedia him. Uh, he's one of the most famous philosophers of all time. So just uh, do that. Camus says, quote, with Nietzsche, nihilism seems to be prophetic, but we can draw no conclusions from Nietzsche except the base and mediocre cruelty that he hated with all his strength. Unless we give first place in his work well ahead of the prophet to the diagnostician. The provisional, methodical, inner world, strategic character of his thought cannot be doubted for a moment. With him, nihilism becomes conscious for the first time. Surgeons have this in common with prophets. They think and operate in terms of the future. He recognized nihilism for what it is, what it was, and examined it like a clinical fact. And I just made note of that quote because it's very important to kind of center and provide context to Nietzsche's thinking. Um, it's important to understand that Nietzsche himself was not a nihilist. And this is like debated people until they're blue in the face, even like in the nihilism subreddit daily, it's like, was Nietzsche a nihilist? Nietzsche is the, you know, all of these things. And no, he wasn't, I guess, is why I have this here. And it's important to understand that. In fact, Camus has a quote here, but I don't, I don't think I wrote it down, but I really liked it. It was like, you know, Nietzsche claims that he is a nihilist, but begrudgingly so, and only as a product of his time. Right. And so most people read Nietzsche's claim and say, oh, he's a nihilist. He's admitting to be one. But it's the same as if, right, like a socialist today admits to being a capitalist. Like you have no choice. Right. Like, yes, I consume and I must do so and work to survive, et cetera. So even though I'm anti-capitalist, I still my behavior, et cetera, is capitalistic. I am a capitalist in that sense. Kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason that it's important is that Nietzsche is essentially the whistleblower on nihilism. And he, his whole philosophy is how do we stop what he sees as coming as a result of nihilism? Like, how do we stop this apocalypse, essentially, 
that's coming. Um, and it's important to understand that Nietzsche is a philosopher of nihilism, not a nihilist himself. Um, this is Camus again. Nietzsche never thought except in terms of an apocalypse to come, not in order to extol it, for he guessed the sordid and calculating aspect that this apocalypse would finally assume, but in order to avoid it and to transform it into a renaissance. This is very clearly a stark contrast from Saad and Stirner. Nietzsche is saying, like, I see this coming. Let's think about, and I'm going to think about, how do we stop this from happening, right? Um, Camus mentions, quote, nihilism becomes conscious for the first time with Nietzsche. You know, essentially, Nietzsche is the first person that philosophizes about nihilism instead of just being a nihilist, if that makes sense, right? Because people can argue, like I said, that Saad is a form of nihilist and Stirner is a form of nihilist, but they never use those terms. Nietzsche is the first person that talks about nihilism from the philosophical perspective. Yes, we, you know, we talked about Turgenev and Fathers and Sons and Dostoevsky and so forth, but they were novelists, right? They're writing about nihilism. And even, you know, Dostoevsky is a huge critic of it in his works, but he never provides us a philosophical system to try to battle it other than in his works of literature, you know, pointing out how... Yeah, it's metaphorical. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to say how absurd it is, but I try not to use the term absurd when we're talking about Camus because then it just gets all twisted. Um, and I like to compare Nietzsche, not in their philosophy by any means, but to Machiavelli, because I teach a class called State and Society where we talk about, you know, the origins of the state and philosophy of the state, et cetera. And I use Machia Machiavelli in the same sense where he was really one of the first ones to talk about the state, right, as a subject of his philosophy. And as a result, the state itself sort of came into consciousness. It was illuminated as a thing that we could talk about and control and strategize and so forth. Nietzsche does the same thing for nihilism is all I'm trying to say uh, with that example. Well, and it's similar in that Machiavelli talks about it. And all of a sudden, like we have like, you know, adjectives like Machiavellian, assuming mm -hmm. that's what he was about, right? Which is not right. necessarily the case. But we assume when he writes things like The Prince, that's, it's the same thing with Nietzsche, right? And, and this idea of writing about nihilism does not necessarily make one a nihilist. No, that's a perfect point. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so Saad and Stirner basically make the leap into the abyss of nihilism. Nietzsche's whole project is to try to work a way out to avoid, you know, the apocalypse that is coming. This is Camus again. He says, quote, Nietzsche was the first to understand the immense importance of the event, the death of God, and to decide that this rebellion on the part of men could not lead to a renaissance unless it was controlled and directed. Any other attitude toward it, whether regret or complacency, must lead to the apocalypse. Thus Nietzsche did not formulate a philosophy of rebellion, but constructed a philosophy on rebellion. I think that's a really important um, Point. And obviously, you know, Nietzsche is famous for, you know, God is dead, etc. Um, although I love, Camus has a really cool quote in here. I don't know if I copied it or not, but we'll see. Where basically Nietzsche didn't kill God. He discovered him murdered by his contemporaries, which I thought was uh, really good. So Nietzsche suggests that the only way to live in the face of nihilism with after the death of God is to create our own moral imperatives, is to create our own values and our own morals. We must maintain a lucid awareness of nihilism at all times. And in the face of that, we must figure out how we are going to live. We must develop our own morality to prevent the destruction of everyone that Saad and Stirner, right, were espousing. And if you know anything about Nietzsche's philosophy, this is the job of the Uber Mensch, which is, I did not know this, but controversially translated in like a hundred different ways 
from Superman to Overman to Superhuman to Overhuman to, you know, et cetera. Um, I'm going to go with Overman apparently is the most scholarly acceptable uh, version, but I think Superman is probably the most like just common lexicon. Um, Quote, since the world has no direction, man, from the moment he accepts this, must give it one. That will eventually lead to a superior type of humanity. So part of Nietzsche's philosophy is these ubermensch are going to create moral guidelines that then will lead to, you know, an evolution of humanity that will essentially help us avoid the apocalypse of nihilism. Okay, I'm going to read a quote here from Camus that kind of he ends this section, then we'll have some commentary. He says, quote, the essence of his discovery, meaning Nietzsche, consists in saying that if eternal law is not freedom, the absence of law is still less so. If nothing is true, if the world is without order, then nothing is forbidden. To prohibit an action, there must, in fact, be a standard of values and an aim. But at the same time, nothing is authorized. There must also be values and aims in order to choose another course of action. Absolute domination by the law does not represent liberty, but no, no more does absolute anarchy. The sum total of every possibility does not amount to liberty, but to attempt the impossible amounts to a slavery. Chaos is also a form of servitude. Freedom exists only in a world where what is possible is defined at the same time as what is not possible. Without law, there is no freedom. If fate is not guided by superior values, if chance is king, then there is nothing but the step in the dark and the appalling freedom of the blind. On the point of achieving the most complete liberation, Nietzsche therefore chooses the most complete subordination. Any thoughts on that? No, because I'm going to commit the common crime of immediately associating this with the bastardized interpretation that leads, <laughs> of course, to a world war. Um, right. I, it's really creepy that I, when you read it and you know how it was bastardized, and it's very difficult to separate mm -hmm. that, even because you can't blame him for this. You can't. It's not his fault that it was taken to the most extreme dogmatic and 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 again maybe almost ridiculously interpreted version of itself in mm -hmm. 1939 right like you can't it's not his fault and yet i can't break that so it always i'm always reading nietzsche with like this like you know like mm -hmm. you know i don't know what the word is um but yeah i i'm always looking into this and seeing like eh, nazis nazis not you know what i'm saying <laughs> exactly. like yeah yeah so, I mean, that's not an accident, right? Like that narrative yeah. was manufactured. His sister, so Nietzsche dies, I think it's 1900. It's around there. I think um, he goes insane at the end of his life, much like Saad, and he dies and his sister takes over his estate. And she, when Hitler rises to power, becomes a Nazi, member of the Nazi party. As a result, Nietzsche's estate gets funding from the Nazi government the Nazi regime. So sort of this weird relationship between Nietzsche's archive, in fact, his sister is the one that compiles and publishes the will to power, which is like his last great work, all of these manuscripts. She's the one that puts those all together and publishes it after he dies. So the archive and his sister as a Nazi and the Nazi regime funding the archive. So like, it's very clearly intentional that his ideas were then bastardized and used to inspire and bolster the Nazi ideology, 
Right. But it's so easy because of the way he kind of leads it open. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. we do need, we do need these morals and we have to create them. It's not God in, and, and it's not nature. Fine. We need to manufacture our own morals. Mm -hmm. Well, who's going to be in charge of that? Immediately people, of course, based on these philosophies are going to leap at that chance to be the one that frames those morals, frames what law is, frames what freedom is, frames what subordination is. People are going to leap on that. And I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit, but I, I do. Camus hits him right in the face when he says he dreamed of tyrants who were artists, but ty- tyranny comes more naturally than art to mediocre men, right? Like that's that quote is fire. I'm glad, you know, oh, it's yeah, in 100%. here. Yeah, yeah, I love that quote. Yep. Because that was, and it also illuminates how much it's such a bastardization of his ideas because like he says, Nietzsche was about like the creative essence in human beings and they use the good parts of themselves to create these values and these morals that will allow them to excel and evolve Right. Well, like Camus points out, that's not how it works out, that it's easier to become tyrannical than it is to be creative. Right. And I love this line by Nietzsche or sorry, by Camus. When I first read The Rebel like years ago, this like just stood out to me because I thought it was so great. He says, in the history of intelligence, with the exception of March, Nietzsche's adventure has no equivalent. We shall never finish making reparation for the injustice done to him. And of course, he's talking about how now this greatest, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, now his ideas are forever associated with Nazism, right? That this is just such a huge offense to Nietzsche as a man and as a philosopher that we were never, we will, like you said, it's impossible now to separate the two and we will never sort of finish apologizing for that act. Um, Yeah, I mean, no matter what lens I read every quote, I'm like, oh, well, this is how the Third Reich used this. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. I like how he says, with the exception of Marx, because he's going to have a lot of critique of Marxism in the next section of the book. Um, but he's sympathetic to Marx and the way that his ideas are used uh, out of context, let's say, uh, as well. But we'll get to that in the next section. Um, so that's Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche basically takes a derivation away from Saad and, and Stirner. And instead of sort of espousing, you know, everything's acceptable. Nietzsche says that is true, but if we accept that, then we're going to murder everyone, right? Apocalypse is upon us. Instead, we must take a different direction. And so for Nietzsche, it's we must, you know, be creative and come up with our own morals that are just, et cetera. And we will then be able to evolve humanity. Um, but like we've talked about, that takes a very bad turn very quickly. Uh, I mean, it takes a few decades, but relatively quickly. Then Camus talks about the Poets' Rebellion. We're not going to talk about this section, even though I actually really liked it, um, but I am not an expert on you know, French poetry or surrealism uh, by any means, although I was very intrigued by, oh, how do you pronounce his name in French? L'Autremont, I'm assuming. Um, one of the sections that Camus has is L'Autremont and Banality. And I had never heard of this person before, but his story is like fascinating. Maybe we'll do an episode on him. He like wrote his best work at the age of 17 and like was just like a fascinating dude. I just read his Wikipedia and was like, what? But anyways, um, I did nothing good at the age of 17 uh, or have I wrote great poetry since then either uh, ever. So um, anyways, we're not going to do that part. You can read that uh, if you want to. The closing part of this section is uh, this part of the book is nihilism and history. And this is his sort of... um, progress into the next section. He says, quote, we must now embark on the subject of this convulsive effort to control the world and to introduce a universal rule. We have arrived at the moment when rebellion, rejecting every aspect of servitude, attempts to annex all creation. 
every time it experiences a setback. We have already seen that the political solution, the solution of conquest, is formulated. Progress from the time of Saad up to present day has consisted in gradually enlarging the stronghold, where, according to his own rules, man without God brutally wields power. To kill, till, to kill God and to build a church are the constant and contradictory purpose of rebellion. And so the metaphysical rebels philosophize with ever actually being part of a revolution. But the next section, which is section three of the book titled Historical Rebellion, Camus is going to analyze those that put it into action. So that'll be the next section, which actually is much more in line with our uh, areas of expertise and our interests. But we'll have a lot more, I think, to say um, on that one. Anything to add? Uh, no, I want to get back to that quote real quick because I think it's the mm-hmm. perfect transition to talk about the history of rebellion, to kill God and to build a church, right? Like that's the uh, that's that's the inconsistency we see mm-hmm. in historical rebellion over and over again. So I think that's a perfect metaphor that Camus hits us with. So let's transition. Well, I mean, spoiler alert, right? The entire next yeah. section is about how all revolutions end in totalitarianism, right? right? Because they go down this path and forget right. their spirit of original rebellion. That's Camus' argument anyways, um, if you couldn't tell. Then he right. finishes out the book with uh, what most people say is a version of anarcho-syndicalism. Uh, spoiler alert, but we'll get there when we do that. Um, yeah, that's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app. That will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.